Welcome to the Homeschool Together podcast. Where one working mom and a stay-at-home dad help you navigate the nuts and bolts of the growing and dynamic world of homeschooling. With a focus on early learners. Like me! All the ins and outs of building and maintaining your homeschool life. Homeschool! Find out tips and tricks to make things like this easier. I'm reading! And ultimately, enjoy educating your kids. And what's that last thing? Have fun together! Did I do good, Daddy? (laughs) Yeah, you did, sweetie. Good job. Welcome back to Homeschool Together. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have a chance, head down into the show notes and check out our YouTube channel. And if you could, leave us a nice, wonderful review um, there on iTunes, and it really helps people find us. We're getting close to 100, I believe, 100 reviews. Yeah, yeah, we're working towards it. We are working towards it. Today, we are starting a kicking off another series. We did a, a whole month of, of, of you know, bettering yourself yeah, and, and self-care. self-care month that we did earlier uh, this year. We are starting and embarking on a brand new month-long exercise around writing. A theme, if you a will. A theme, if you will, yes. We're trying to, we're trying to you know, be more thoughtful in, in what we're <laughs> scheduling. Um, because we know that a lot of you, if you guys have been following us from the beginning and you are sitting here at this kind of second grade, first grade, third grade, fourth grade level, you guys are going to be getting to look into the idea of writing um, and writing well and encouraging our, our learners to write, you know, not just simple composition stuff, but maybe even, you know, short fiction or poems or whatever it might be. And so we wanted to kick off this entire month of talking about writing and improving writing habits and helping our children, you know, cultivate that love of writing because we know it can be very challenging. And I I know our guest today talked about how writing can be just as challenging as learning to read or learning to do math. It's another Um, skill. Absolutely. So we welcome back uh, Jeannie Faulkner, who we had on, I think, was it this year or last year? Um, I So... We had Jeannie come on the show uh, and do a couple of great episodes for us. She works for uh, the Homeschool Mom. She does a lot of writing there and has uh, really great insights about all kinds of great homeschool topics, and she'll talk about that. But first and foremost, Jeannie is a writer. Um, and, and a homeschool mom. And a homeschool mom, right? And her kids are grown now, so she's kind of gone, gone through the whole, um, all the stages, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> all the way to, you know, having them graduate college. And so... Um, and she is, she's a writer and she worked for a while for a brave writer. So she's pretty familiar with that as well. And so we thought she would be just a great expert to kick off this series. She's so insightful and always gives us great food for thought. And yeah. I felt like after we talked with her, I was kind of like, oh man, I wish I would ask that. Oh no, I, was, I thought of that. And yeah, always, she always. really changed the way that I was thinking about it because writing is something that's not, um, easy. I think kids do naturally want to tell stories, but when it comes to putting their thoughts down, whether you're going to have them do it in handwriting or you're dictating to them, they're dictating to you and you're scribing for them, um, or they're starting to type on their own. It, it's a new, it's a new thing. And it's a little scary to put your own, like put yourself out there. It's a complex, it's a really complex task. It's, Mm -hmm. it's more than just reading. It's reading comprehension and it's thinking and it's composing. And then there's motor skills and muscle memory and stamina and the revision process and and mm-hmm. thinking through ideas improving ideas it's 
it's the whole kit and caboodle type of thing, right? right? It's it's a huge topic, and it it's it, it's not just one. I think what what we came out of this was it's not just a curriculum, it's a kind of a way of thinking. It's going to be a, a right. way of thinking and how we approach the day to day when it comes to embracing all aspects of writing. And the great thing that Jeannie talked about is that there are all these different stages of writing, mm-hmm. and it's it's an it's an evolution as these children move from you know, these young kindergartners all the way up to a sixth grader or seventh grader who's starting to write poetry. There's a huge growth there and it doesn't happen overnight and it's very progressive over time and and things emerge and you'll have to do different things at different times. You'll have to learn different skills. You'll have to embrace and meet the learner. I think that was a big key that she always talked about. Meet the learner where they are Mm -hmm. um, and and help them um, move through those. So I really enjoyed this talk. We we we, yeah. we covered a whole wide range of writing, not just writing, but also reading. We talked about reading for pleasure and reading for for comprehension and meaning. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about AI at the end. Had a nice little little discussion there at the end as well. This was a a wide ranging conversation, and yeah. I could not imagine kicking off like a month of talking about writing and not having this right up front. Yep. I think this is a great start to it. And it really covers all levels. This isn't just for early learners. She talks about high school and middle school and the different stages. Uh, So this is a great It's a long interview, but it's well worth the time. Yeah, this is a real quality one. So we hope that- Jeannie's a professional. She's great. She is terrific. So we hope that you enjoy this wonderful interview with Jeannie Faulkner. Hi, Jeannie. Welcome back. I'm so glad to be back with you all. Writing is one of my favorite homeschooling topics. Oh, well, we're excited. We were like, we're who's kind of, the expert that we know about writing? Ah, starting to get, we're starting to get into this world. Like we've gone from, you know, learning to write our letters to reading. And now we're starting to have to think about composition and writing and whatnot. Yeah. So it's it's a good time for us to, we're kind of vicariously you know, getting educated through through this podcast. <laughs> I, so I love it. You're growing with the podcast, with your mm-hmm. topics. I, as yep. your kids get older, that's a great way to do it. That's exactly what one happened. day we'll be doing quantum mechanics. Like I was giving you my Oppenheimer review before. That's before right. <laughs> so for, for those who haven't listened to our first interview, kind of get us grounded. So, you know, you've been a homeschool mom and you're an author. Can you give us a little bit of background about your writing journey personally? Sure. I really was always a writer. I grew up knowing that I was a writer. I had a wonderful mom who was not a homeschool mom, but who really knew how to nurture that writing voice. She wrote down my stories before I could write. She bound them into little books. She really did all the very homeschool mom type things that you might expect. And I loved writing and wrote a lot through school in my first high school job was writing for the weekly newspaper back when we had such things. They are gone the way of the dinosaurs now, but that was what I did instead of working at the Tasty Freeze or whatever. I, I wrote, uh, covered the town board meetings and and whatever else was going on, the county fair and so forth. And went to college, majored in English and journalism again, back when journalism was not a dying career like it is now. And I eventually ended up teaching English composition and journalism at the college level. So then, of course, taught my own kids and those in homeschool co-ops writing. And as far as my own writing personally, I spent a lot of time doing academic writing, writing for news, and then also writing poetry. I really love writing poetry. I spent a lot of time 
going to weekly poetry workshops for years working on my poetry. So have done a little bit of everything. Wow. Well, I think you're the perfect person to ask all about this topic then. So, so for our homeschool parents, how do we kind of set the stage for writing? How do we create an environment that um, is conducive to writing and supportive? What should we all be doing? Writing needs to be safe for kids. So that's the first thing is writing can feel risky. And so our environment needs to feel not risky to encourage writing. And that can be things as simple as uh, not having paper that falls apart when kids erase on it or not requiring kids to erase because that's a big investment. Once they put writing down on paper and now you're telling them they have to redo it, all of a sudden the risk may be greater than the reward. Maybe I don't want to write anything because if I make a mistake, I'll have to do it again and it's hard. So making a safe environment is really important. It also needs to be comfortable so, you know, pleasant. You like to do things in a pleasant atmosphere where the environment feels good. Literally good good lighting, a comfortable place to sit or a silly place to sit if that feels better. Some kids want to write sitting on the limb of a tree or under the kitchen table. And that works if they're just getting their ideas out. And then I think finally, parents really need to understand that writing needs to be theirs. It needs to be belong to the kids. And parents often jump in too quickly and take ownership of how writing should look or read or sound. And it, it kind of circles back to safety there, but it's a little different thing. What I'm really talking about here is giving kids authorship, letting them be in charge of their own thoughts on paper and not jumping in too quickly to make corrections or challenge them, but to let them own the writing. So free, free to make a lot of mistakes is, is kind of what you're saying. Like Absolutely. Absolutely. Free to make a lot of mistakes. And it's, it's really hard. I I tell the story of a a kid in my co-op who wrote, we, we were doing a circle of critiques as we listened to each other's writing. And this was a a young high school group. And this one kid was really nervous to participate. So every time it was his turn to comment on the writing, he said, it needs more ham. And we all just looked at each other. And of course the kids laughed, it needs more ham. And he did this for a couple weeks and I just let him do it. it. He didn't know what, and then one day he said, that reminds me of this thing that I read and and went on and made a connection. Now it sounds silly to let him own that thought. It was just a thought. It wasn't even in writing, but instead of fussing at him for it, we just went on to the next person, let him have his moment. He got comfortable. He was allowed the room to make that mistake of, you know, not really commenting on the writing. And then eventually he looped, he couldn't resist right? The conversation was too good. He couldn't resist. So he got away from it needs more ham, but I'll never forget it. It was a great, a great way to remember that kids sometimes need to go through that process of being irreverent, of making mistakes, of learning how to be a part of the group. So you're referencing kind of a younger kid when, you know, as a family who's listening to this, they're starting to get to that seven, eight years old. 
you know, when are they supposed to start thinking about the writing process? It does that, should that start earlier and more of like a pre-writing type of thing? Like how, how do parents think about as homeschoolers introducing this kind of almost like we think math and reading's hard. And then all of a sudden now we're going to layer it on top of that composition and bringing out ideas. It's, 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 it's almost as daunting of a process as, uh, as like reading and math at the beginning, uh, these early years that we're in. It is almost as daunting. And I think it's even less visible because I think by the time parents start to think, oh, I better start thinking about writing composition, their kids have actually been at it for a while in ways that parents haven't noticed, but hopefully they've encouraged just because they are good nurturing parents. And here's what I mean. We often hear people say, for very young children, toddlers and preschoolers and kindergartners and first graders, that most learning should be through play. And people acknowledge that and homeschoolers are fond of saying it, but we don't really know what does that mean? Well, in terms of writing, when kids are doing imaginative play, they are composing in their heads a universe, characters for themselves to inhabit and their playthings to inhabit. They are already writing without putting a pen to paper or making marks. They are composing in their minds. So that imaginative play that has happened before you've paid attention to it is the beginning of writing. And that's why you want to keep encouraging it and allowing it. And you know, when kids are playing happily, some kind of imagination game, you have this instinct, even when they're seven, eight, nine, not to bother it. Mm -hmm. And it's a good instinct because what they're doing in that really good imaginative play is developing the life of their mind. So that's already happening. The next stage is probably storytelling where they are able to listen to stories from parents and read alouds. And then they are also able to begin telling stories. And again, for some kids, this can happen as early as two, more likely three and four and five and six. And storytelling is the beginning of taking that inner life and and moving it toward paper. It's it's not on paper. It's just toward paper at that point because it's toward someone else's ear. So storytelling is that next stage. And again, it just goes on while you don't notice it and you need to encourage it for longer than you think. Mm -hmm. And for me, the written composition transition happened when I began to write down their stories, just as my mother did for me. And you'll hear this often from writers that they had someone who really nurtured this early storytelling impulse by helping kids get it down on paper. So, you know, that's kind of how I see the early years of writing. And that's kind of funny because one of the things that I've always done with my daughter, we, we do, we share the, the, the putting down duties, but back when we, uh, she was a lot younger, I was putting her down. I would always, we would always do the thing of tell me the story of your day. Yeah. And at the end of the night we would recount like well, what happened? Or if I picked her up from preschool, I go, tell me the story of your preschool. And it's like, okay, daddy dropped you off. Then what happened? And then what happened? And then, then what happened? And always kind of thinking about kind of sequentially unfolding, you know, the events so we can, because a lot of times I say, Hey, what happened in preschool? Well, I don't know. 
but if i approach it from a storytelling thing they they immediately go oh yeah then i did this then i did this then i did this our daughter literally did this yesterday she's telling nana all about day camp and she's nana goes well what'd you do at camp she goes okay so first daddy drove us there and then he dropped us off and she started from and and my mom was like you have to start quite that early and i was like no don't don't interrupt the flow (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's right Yeah, that's wonderful. You have built in a sort of a a basic exercise that parents can do with their kids Mm -hmm. to get them in this sort of narrative flow and to move their inner thoughts to the outside. So I, I think that's, you know, we do it intuitively if we don't start filling our time with writing exercises that maybe block the intuition or get us panicky sometimes. So. Yeah. So, so those are those kind of early years, but then all of a sudden, you know, people are thinking about curriculum choices. You know, what do I have to buy? How do I, you know, implement something that I can then teach them how to, how to do anything when people are thinking about doing kind of a writing curriculum, you know, what are they looking for in a good curriculum? What what are the kind of the hallmarks of a good curriculum that, you know, can help them, you know, grammar, logic, rhetoric, you know, how do I take those kind of stuffy classic words and, are those needed to be in our my writing curriculum or do I approach it from a different different manner? So you'll obviously find people who have very different opinions on this. Yep. I tend to be a constructivist type of homeschooler who likes to meet my kids where they are and move them toward the next right thing. And for me, for composition, that meant not putting a lot of emphasis early on on grammar and logic and rhetoric through a textbook. And so what I look for in an early writing curriculum where you're actually trying to encourage composition is whether it engages the child. So a lot of times this means trial and error. Some kids want a writing curriculum or respond to a writing curriculum that tells them exactly what to do. Um, You know, how to add adjectives, how to make writing more of a formula. But in my experience, most kids, my kids actually are the other way. They need to be unblocked and need to have a writing curriculum that invites them to write again in a safe environment and it allows them to have authorship over their writing and it it encourages them gradually to learn to write to forms so for example we all know that there's a place in the world for the five paragraph essay I personally don't think there's a very big place for it at all. I'm I'm not a fan. Uh, They don't really. Neither are most kids. (laughs) Right. And neither are most kids and, and neither are college professors. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bosses, you know, it's a very artificial formulaic type of writing. However, it is a formula that, that it helps some kids organize their thoughts, but it's just a form. And there are other forms that parents can use. And I'm going to use examples from Julie Bogart's Brave Writer program. Uh, She gives one example of a project where she has kids draw the outline of their body on butcher paper. Now, everybody's done that. And we usually 
then have kids put in, you know, draw their eyes and nose and all that kind of stuff. But she has this idea of having them actually write little things about themselves. So, you know, my eyes are blue. Scrawl that on the margin, great big on the side of the butcher block paper or um, my hands like paint and so on and so on. It, it seems not like a form, but it is a form, just like a lap book is a form. And so when our kids are young, we don't need to impose a form that's not going to be needed until they're in sixth or seventh or eighth grade. We need to use forms that are friendly to them that they can grow with. And what's happening is they are still getting that inner life of their mind out and they are getting practice using a form, but the form is scaffolded to be at the exact place where they are instead of some place way out there that they can't reach yet. And, and it's the same thing for grammar. I mean, one of my kids is a musician and I, I'll never forget when he said to me one time, you know, some music lessons are too many scales and not enough music. And that's what can happen with writing. Some writing lessons are too much grammar and not enough thinking and communicating. Mm -hmm. And so for little kids and slightly getting older kids, we, we really need to make sure we're not imposing form and grammar that cuts the thought off at the knees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, so, and and when you talk about form, does that also talk about like the genre? Like it's a lot of times when people think about writing, they're thinking of like kind of the five paragraph essay. Are you suggesting, you know, embracing whatever type of writing they would like to do, whether it's poetry, as, as you said, that was passionate about or comics or graphic novels, or maybe they want to write short stories or whatever it might be. So it's, are you saying unbound, not only just the technical aspect of writing, but also, you know, the, the subject matter that they're writing about? A hundred percent. And okay. not just the subject matter and the technical aspect, but also I think there is a bias against creative writing in homeschooling. I will sometimes read on Reddit or Facebook groups oh, such and such a curriculum or such and such a project is only creative writing. Well, give me a kid who can do creative writing and I'll show you a kid who can later write about quantum mechanics as you <laughs> brought up uh, when you were mentioning the Oppenheimer movie. Uh, it, creative writing is challenging and it is not less than, and it builds engagement. And I have over and over and over been privileged to see kids make this change. Uh, and it's, it's different, you know, for some kids, it comes fourth grade, for some kids, it comes seventh grade, for some kids, it comes when they take their first college class, where they have then read enough essays, which should be part of our job as parents, or have done enough research that they realize that telling a story in the once upon a time mode is not going to be the right form. 
and and they begin to want their form to match what is expected by the, of their peers. And so it comes along if we are patient. And so I, when, you know, to circle it back to curriculum, I think for me, a writing curriculum needs to respect this process rather than trying to push kids to get all the grammar right, all the thinking right, all the handwriting right, all of the form in some way that is acceptable for a high schooler and and put all that together. It's it's too much. It's not developmentally appropriate. So so do you think that it, that a a writing curriculum is a necessity for a homeschool family or is it something that we have a a homeschooler who's just really reluctant to write at all they don't want to touch it so it's like i'm going to get something fun like brave writer or another program to just help them get out of their shell or if you've got a student who's you know not reluctant to write do you just you know start making writing an integral part of all of your other studies and start kind of piecing it in like what's your advice for families on you know how necessary it is to purchase and follow you know yet another we start stacking curriculums at some point as we get older and we're like oh, that's sure. another one i got to do you know so that's a great question i think that what parents should always ask themselves is is my child engaged and is my child continuing to learn and progress? So a child who is a really good writer, you might say, oh, they don't need a curriculum. They're such a good writer. But they also might get bored if they aren't given ideas of how to keep going with their writing. So sometimes you you need that as, a, as inspiration and so that they understand that they can do even more with their writing than they're aware of. And the same thing can be true with kids at the other end. Very reluctant kids may benefit from instruction that encourages and supports them where they are rather than just saying, oh, they'll get it. So sometimes curriculum can help at either end. Now, I am a huge fan of interdisciplinary learning. And so if you have a kid who loves dinosaurs, which I think we talked about in one of the last podcasts that we did, one of the last episodes. If they love dinosaurs and they start writing a story about dinosaurs and they are in third or fourth grade and they are, you know, making sure that they use the right names of the dinosaurs at least part of the time and they're getting some of the characteristics of the dinosaurs and they're telling a narrative story about the dinosaurs and they're engaged and their writing is from this year is looking better than it was last year, that may be all the curriculum you need because you don't want a curriculum to do damage to what may be happening happening organically. So I think all of this is a matter of judgment. And that's one of the hard things about homeschooling is that we we second guess ourselves when we're using that judgment, but it's really okay to say, my child is flourishing already with the writing that they are enjoying and showing improvement in, or my child actually would like to do more, or my child is reluctant and I don't seem to be able to pull it out of them on my own. Maybe we need some extra help. So, so maybe pivoting from kind of the creative aspect and the early writing, you know, a lot of us know that when we start to do history, 
um, even English and things of that nature, they may have to write a little bit more critically and may have to actually defend ideas. How do you walk that kind of fine line between, you know, as you said, be, being a parent and not, you know, pushing them into an area where they don't want to be meeting them where they, they need to be, but also being, you know, critical and saying, Hey, your ideas here may need to be, you know, what are you thinking about here? Or what's your thoughts on this? And, and having to defend that idea in writing, you know, how, how can we navigate that in, in, in a creative manner that's, you know, fun and enriching without being negative? I mean, we've all had those teachers that are like, you know, C minus because I didn't like your argument. And there's obviously better ways to approach that. And, you know, how can we do that as parents? So you actually answered it in your question when you gave some examples about um, asking questions. You 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 said, "Oh, I I don't I, I can't well I can't put it back to you now." But you you gave questions that you might ask a kid, and that is helping them test their ideas. So I for homeschoolers, I like to say the dinner table conversation, text and emailing with family forums and debate. So dinner table conversation, you know, when kids come up with these wild statements that can't be true or are partly true or might be true, but they don't actually have the evidence for it. You know, the, the writing with a critical thinking lens on comes from conversation with a critical thinking lens on. So it comes when I say, where did you read that? Do you, what, what do you know about that source? Is that a really a good source? Uh, why do you think that? Oh, that sounds like a statistic. Do you know how this kind of statistic works? And so my kids would say, you know, she's always going to be the devil's advocate. And constantly I would challenge them on things that I actually agreed with taking, taking the side of, something that I I didn't agree with just in order to have them test their ideas. And we did this just conversationally all day long and it could not help but bleed into their writing. We also did it by text and email and even by Slack where, and, and I've got grown adult kids today and this still goes on. You know, somebody sends me an article and I say, what about this? And they do it back to me. Mom, did you know that that podcaster has had this criticism of him? And so it's a conversation that has to take place because again, what you're doing is training the mind. The pen can't write on paper critical thinking thoughts that the mind hasn't learned to deal with. And so conversation in the house at the dinner table, not just at lesson time, through texting, through email, all of that works. Now, my kids also got a lot of this kind of experience in forums when they were in high school, when they had a little more freedom on the internet. I know we all have to be sort of concerned about that kind of thing, but they had things that they wanted to explain to people and prove to people. And sometimes they would come to me and say, they just don't get it. How can I get them to understand what I'm trying to get across? And I'm talking, these are tech forums and gaming forums and music forums. And, and, you know, it doesn't, some of that doesn't may not seem important to parents, but this is a training ground where to them, it really matters if their opinion is understood and 
So that's that's how it begins. And formal debate actually can be a part of this too, uh, where critical thinking, again, it's oral, but it's with preparation and research. And then that informs how you will write later. So then when we're actually looking at, you know, a kid's paper that was written on a science or a history or a social topic, they are not going to be floored by the fact that we're asking these questions of their paper because we've been doing it all along. They'll, mm -hmm. They will expect it and they'll have that conversation. And over and over, my kids, again, in co-op and, and in my own family would say, oh, I need to put that part in there about where that statistic came from. Or I see you're saying that's just an anecdote. It's not actually something that would happen every time in that circumstance. And I need to fix that in my writing. So it, it comes along, but when you try to do it in an isolated way, just at their writing, and you've never cultivated this kind of conversation before, it can really shut down a writer. And that's especially something you don't want to do with a teenager because, you know, they're, they're, they're really wanting to start to express these opinions and understand the world and get their points across. If you haven't had that kind of relationship all along, it can be very off-putting, you know, to have them, you, them hand you a paper and then you just say, well, this doesn't make sense because of this and this and this. Ask questions. Mm -hmm. uh, Inquiry-based learning is where the critical thinking skills are developed. Is there a moment where you see that transition where it goes from a young student who is articulating story to trying to articulate more meaning behind like, and I'll use an example. A lot of times we'll, I've seen my cousins uh, do this where once they hit a certain age, people start to become interested in music, not just because it's fun to dance to, but because they like the lyrics and they want to understand the poetry behind them or they watch a movie and that inspires them to write a short, short story or, you know, they're writing poetry on their own. You, you tend to see that change when they begin that adolescent kind of change, like that 10, 11, 12 years old, where things begin to, you know, envelop more meaning behind them. Is is that a, a moment where you need to make some changes in how you you approach writing or or actually be more behind them and push them in the, in, in the right direction? I think this is a great time for kids to have an audience besides their dad and their mom. Mm -hmm. If you can get these writers who are 10, 11, 12, 13 and up in, it, it doesn't even have to be very many people, but if you have one or two other families or you can invite one or two other kids over and have them share writing together, of course, if they are competitive or they are bullying or whatever, if they're bad dynamics, it doesn't work. But if you have good dynamics, this uh, idea of almost having a, a kind of Socratic salon type session feels very grown up to them. And they begin to feel that they have an audience that goes beyond the parent. And that's, that's very important for keeping uh, a student wanting to continue to get better because they realize, oh, it's not just that my parent wants me to write this. It's that this has a role in the world. And my friend wants to know what I think about it. And my other friend 
commented on how I worded something. And so I do think that bringing groups into play, small groups does help these kids who are getting older. Well, and mm. I've, I've seen that with some uh, writer friends of mine um, on a platform called Scribophile, where they will crowdsource editing their, their stories and they'll, they'll critique and, you know, non-judgmental way, but they'll help each other and almost like a critique group and, and how much benefit that, that gives them and becoming better and better writers. And I speak of writers um, in that, in that sense, because we've always heard that good writers are good readers um, and they tend to read wide and, and how can, you know, we cultivate better writers through better readers. It's definitely true that reading and I'll throw in listening to audiobooks, which I think we can talk about later as well, but, mm-hmm. and also I think discussions and knowledge and content and a good life of the mind all are connected to becoming a good writer. So a good writer will have more vocabulary and more language experience if they've read a lot, but they will also get that from listening. And they will also get that from those good discussions that are back and forth about their writing. And knowledge is an important thing too. One thing that I didn't talk about at the very beginning that I probably should have is I am a big believer in a process that starts with free writing and then goes through a revision process and then finally an editing and proofreading process. And adding knowledge and content to a free writing paper is an example of a revision that can really take things to a higher level. And a lot of that knowledge is gained through reading. So when kids, let's go back to our dinosaur example, when kids are wanting to write something, if they have developed knowledge because they have heard, I don't know how many dinosaur books, and maybe they've also taken field trips and seen um, fossils in the museum, all of this builds knowledge and it's all connected to reading. And then it can come back out in the writing. So I think it is a often a question of having enough input in order to have output. So writing is the output and reading is one of the main inputs that can fill up a kid so that they have enough to say when they want to go to write. And you know, I think that term good readers make good writers is maybe an older term. Uh, because now we have so much more ways of consuming content, um, like what you said with like essays or, or, or listening to things or audiobooks, And I think there were less choices back in the day. And I think there's, you're right. There's so many more opportunities to have different inputs that can help hone and improve whatever that output is. But one of the, the things that I always like is, is a question of quality, you know, is they reading a bunch of, and I, I'm not going to upset my magic tree house. If no, like if somebody reads a lot of trashy romance novels and I hug her Listen, right here, um, versus I feel, reading, I feel reading attacked, personally attacked Anna Karenina right there. Um, <laughs> what, you know, how, how do we, how do we as parents go? Okay. I, I know you should probably read, you know, you know, whatever classic book it is, but you really love to read 
Artemis Fowl, you know, right, <laughs> and, or Harry Potter or whatever it might be. How do we balance those things without losing our our kids? Well, if you try too hard to balance them and you lose your kids, there is no balance. Mm-hmm. So it will happen one way or the other, and you can you can try to force it so that they are only reading what you consider you know classic literature or whatever but if that doesn't engage them then it won't engage them and you will not have made any mileage by trying to keep that other kind of literature out of your house so it's mm-hmm. it's very tricky i found that letting my kids have a lot of choice of what to read as long as it you know fit our family values worked really well and then my read alouds i would often find ways to make those some of the titles that i thought they should with air quotes <laughs> read mm-hmm. and that seemed to work pretty well because over time they also began to see the difference and it was almost a difference in how they felt. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes they would come to me and say, I'm, I want to read a good book next. And what they meant by that was something that had a little bit more substance to it perhaps, but then they were right back to Artemis Fowl because that is fun and engaging Mm -hmm. and keeps you on to the next thing. And I let them have at it, but I might be reading a classic to them aloud, which kind of takes the, the, the pain out of it a little bit, maybe. And, you know, if, if a, an adult is a good reader, they can do a lot with inflection and, and warmth and being there to answer questions and, that sort of thing that makes a read aloud a really good way to have an entree into literature that is not romance novels. I, I'm not. <laughs> Listen, I'm not, I'm my- just because I don't like the classics. I'm the one in grad school. I've gotten an A. I've aced every paper. So it's not that. You're, it's just that, you know, you're- they're fun. You know, I want a sci-fi novel or, you know, a trashy romance. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes kids, I think it's in in my mind and, you know, correct me if this is totally wrong. I feel like it's like a junk food thing, Mm -hmm. right? We obviously can't sustain our lives on junk food, but sometimes you want an Oreo. And so I feel like our kids are kind of that way too, where they do know, I think, I think they can sense, you know, some of the books we read through like build your library, for example, some of the main chapter books, Mm -hmm. I think they know those are substance, but then every once in a while, they're like, let's just read a magic tree house. And, and I think that, that, that they they can see and they're and hopefully they're going to eventually kind of self-select out of the worst of the surface uh you know yeah type books like magic treehouse um but i kind of feel like it's like that like maybe sometimes you need junk food and that's okay it doesn't mean that you're not up for sustenance as well yeah or like like I, when we, ju- we just read um tale of despero like oh, so Miller, right so like that's a piece of literature masking masquerading as you know a children's book and i i I, I think I think a lot of times when we we talk about the, you know, the literature, the classics, I think that's kind of like a that's coming from the literature side of the house. 
who tend to be very insular in their opinions on what is defined as literature. And I think there are a lot of things like, you know, a lot of people can make an argument that Harry Potter has a lot of depth in it. And that if you, you know, in 50 years, when we look back on it, they'll say, okay, that's, you know, no different than the, the Narnia books from C.S. Lewis or whatever it might be. And they are, they have depth that are as deep as a piece of literature that you could have compared it to, you know, for a children's book. And I think that there may be some where those opinions are coming from is maybe diluting what what the choice yeah, is. Like what is literature? Yeah, what is literature? That type of thing. What but, would your what would your definition be, Janie, of of literature? I don't know. That's a really know. hard question. I mean, I think it is storytelling. I mean, literature is storytelling, and that could yeah. be in a novel form or a poem form. To me, it it I mean it can be in a comic book form as far as I'm concerned. Graphic novels now are very literary quite often and are a great way to enter into, you know, things that we might consider, you know, officially more literary. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, even among novels, there are, we might consider them all literature, but some are literary and some are maybe what we would call popular or commercial novels. And there's a difference, but I, I like your, the way you're saying it, Ariel, where it, it, a balance, you know, a snack of this and a diet of that kind of balance itself out. Uh, I, I will say that when I was teaching in college, two of the finest writers that I worked with as students were comic book aficionados. I mean, they were, they had grown up reading comic books and they were extremely literate young men who mm-hmm. were really strong writers. And many people might not recognize that kind of background as a training ground for writers, but clearly it had been wonderful for them. And people who know about comics actually do understand that people who read comics regularly and and get it they do know how strong the writing is and has to be um so yeah it's a it's a balance it's a balance for sure Uh, and i'll go back and circle back this is a good place to mention curriculum again because there are multiple you've mentioned one i've mentioned one there are some good homeschool curricula that are based on literature, um, children and and young adult novels. And um, these selections are really strong ways to encourage both reading and writing. And some of them often have a writing component and uh, or and or a celebrate the author component that I think is is really good for, helping young writers see themselves as writers. So as far as advice to homeschool parents out there, consider those curricula that have, you know, a great book list and have ways of inviting kids into the books with projects and writing assignments that are related to the books and so forth, because this is how you'll get some really like you said, the tales of Despero and, yeah. and these other great titles. Um, so going from, you know, books and graphic novels, um, what about audiobooks? I have heard. So when we were doing, we have kind of an emergent reader 
um, finally starting to really take off right now. And we're, we're very, very happy. So four, fun. I know four years of hard work. <laughs> it's yes. finally paid off. Um, but I've heard from a number of parents saying that um, audiobooks they felt were a little detrimental to that, uh, an early reader. Um, and, and for this one reason is that they were reading really, really good stories and they get access to them almost unlimited. Um, you know, we, we have Libby through our, our library. And so my daughter can, you know, I'm just out there putting holds all day long yeah, on, on there's books. No, there's no uh, limits. There's no it. limit. To, and she's right. always, and she gets every day, gets her time on audiobooks or quiet time. And she just loves it. Right. And the people are doing the voices and it's super entertaining, but those stories tend to be really good because they're a little bit above her maybe age range. Um, sure. And, and she, when she has to then go ahead and read, you know, Pete the cat or yeah, you know, whatever the early readers, and it's just not as interesting. Um, to her. And we, we found that to be a little bit of a challenge. Um, not as much anymore now that she's starting to pick off, it's but I heard work. another homeschool family say uh, literally the same thing. She started talking about it. She said, Oh yeah, my daughter's listening to all these wonderful books, Artemis fall. And all. it's just very fun, you know, Percy Jackson and things of that nature. And she's just not as interested in picking up books to read because audiobooks is just fun and it's yeah. easy and, and, it's, well, and it's the stories enjoyable. are so simple the simplistic right yeah. whereas with audiobooks there's no limit based on your reading ability it's yeah. just based on your ability to comprehend so how do we balance that between and, you know us reading to our kids it's the same thing right same it's thing, basically yeah. like an audiobook where there's no there's no boundary um except comprehension can how do we balance trying to keep good readers with their level versus what they can understand well i'm i'm gonna challenge you on the the logic there because these are individual examples and mm -hmm. that those may be the cases for your kids, but we may also not be hearing from somebody who says, um, because my kids started listening to so many audiobooks when they were three and four, they couldn't wait to read themselves. So I don't think I, I haven't seen any data that mm -hmm. show that, but I don't deny that an, for an individual child, there might be, uh, less motivation to read if they are getting all their reading diet through audiobooks that are just easy and enjoyable. And I certainly do remember the the phase where the books that my kids could read were not as difficult as the ones they enjoyed listening to. So, so no denying that, but I also think that what you've done with the audiobooks is help your kids build a relationship with books. And when kids are young, when they are four and five and six and seven and eight, you haven't begun to see the payoff for that yet. One of my kids didn't read at all until eight. And I think it was largely because he couldn't stand the baby books, as he called them. And he was so able to listen to much more complicated audiobooks. And so he just waited till he was eight to read. And then within a few months could read those books himself. And I think that at the time I worried about it, but looking back, I think all of that time was spent building a relationship with books, with stories, with authors, with words, and when he was 13 and 14 and 15 and writing songs and, you know, doing high school level work, it, it didn't seem to make a difference at all that we had gone through that period. So 
I, I don't think we know for sure. I don't know of any studies at all that show that audiobooks delay an entrance into reading, but it's a it's a thing I'll go look up after tonight. <laughs> no, it's very this is very well it could be in 1800s us, you know, in the doctors well, learning to be physicians and we're all watching and microanalyzing our children. I I, I fully admit well, that as reading, a homeschool parents we're just too focused sometimes on like the little micro details and we should just step sure. back and just say chill out buddy you know it's yes. going to be all right I mean, and, our reading specialist at school did yeah. say this to us as well that she's had this this problem happen and i wonder if this is a bit of a newer problem because yeah. of the like Technology, the libby yeah. access right and our kids can have access to audiobooks kind of all the time i mean our daughter can just tell the google the google home to play her a story anytime and she does whereas you know before you had to like go to the library and check out the audiobook on cd or on tapes however long ago and then bring it home and then you had to wait to get the next one and maybe it's like that kind of instant access part of it so I wonder if that changes the dynamics a little bit I I mean maybe but I I can tell you that I was that homeschool mom who had so many audiobooks checked out that there was not a moment when my kids I mean (laughs) I can read one of my fondest memories of my kids childhood was back in the day when everybody had to have a cd player in their own room was going upstairs and standing in the hall and hearing, this will make me cry, hearing three different audiobooks going from three different bedrooms. And, you know, so I I get what you're saying mm-hmm. because it is different to be able to just, you know, say, find me this book and it's it appears and, and, and it starts. But audiobooks have been pretty available for a very long time and motivated moms have been you know <laughs> keeping those bags pretty full <laughs> so i wonder if this is one of those you know we just, just we haven't seen dad paranoia That's well maybe we just is. haven't you know we're we're cooking right now and we haven't yeah. seen the final product yet we're still baking yeah, we're still- so- I, I think partly and i also think we don't homeschoolers are different from school kids and i think we also have to think about a lot of mainstream studies done on reading are done on school kids. And I I personally don't think that that necessarily applies to homeschooled kids. Some of it does for sure. You know, kids who need help because they have dysgraphia need help because they have dysgraphia. Or if they need glasses, they need glasses because they can't see and that's going to help them read. But I think it's also true that my kid who didn't learn to read until eight, who, if he were in school, this would have been, we would have been really panicked about this because he would have been already three years, quote unquote, behind. Um, he, he never knew he was behind. He was still gaining knowledge constantly through audiobooks. And one of the articles um, that I've written for the homeschool mom is about how audiobooks help fill or help provide content during skills lags. So homeschooled kids who are seven and eight and nine and aren't fluent readers yet can still know all the things about trains or dinosaurs or honeybees, Mm. or they can still know the authors that other kids are reading because of audiobooks. And school kids, I think, don't necessarily have 
I mean, my kids listened to audiobooks when they were playing Legos, when they were jumping on the trampoline. And, you know, school kids are busy with school. They're doing moving through things in a classroom setting where they don't necessarily have that kind of exposure either. So I think we also have to take some studies with a grain of salt and say, my population of kids is actually having a very different experience than the population that this research was done for. This is me with the critical thinking again, right? I'm challenging the, the, uh, yeah. the status quo a little bit because I don't know all this. And certainly, again, some of it does. And I, I don't want to, um, I'm not dismissing research about reading and writing that is is valid. But I think we do have to consider that our population experiences learning differently because they are at home more. So... Yeah. So that's a good takeaway. Absolutely. Maybe pivoting from the audiobooks into, you know, writing and then the act of writing, um, specifically with the hand, handwriting versus maybe using a keyboard and doing typing. Do you have any opinion on, you know, what what a parent should focus on? Considering yeah. I don't think I've written <laughs> anything <laughs> with my hands um outside of like check boxes and signing my name. Um in years, like, <laughs> yeah, well, and I'm really curious about this because you talked just with our phones, we're always two fingers. You right? talked about, right. you know, kind of this, the early before you even put something on paper, right. That they're making up stories, do imaginative games and mm -hmm. starting to do storytelling. So I'd love to see like, what, what do you think that evolution is like, when do they start handwriting? And then when does that move into typing or maybe to Matt's point, is it does typing come earlier when we learned uh, typing in high school? Swipe, so yeah. that was not like, yeah. uh, you know, obviously it's different now. What, what do you see as that progression? Yeah, we weren't pushed to start typing until, I mean, I, we were in college, I mean, college, high late high school. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, it, it has definitely changed with how technology is present in our homes that was never available to us um, mm -hmm. longer ago and much, much different. I'm, I'm older than you also very different from from that many years ago but I think it's it's pretty individual the first thing I will say is that I really like the concept of separating the hand from the writing meaning the hand that practices how to form letters and words on paper with a pencil separate that process from composition and a child who they will put this, they will begin to put this together in their own way at their own pace. And we can support both and we can support it separately. So uh, a child who is practicing forming words and letters, we can encourage and provide lessons for that or whatever works for our family to, to help them grow in that way. But we can also be their scribe and write down their stories. And I remember I mentioned that at the very beginning that, that that's what my mother did for me. And that was part of what made me a writer, I am sure. So we can take away the challenge of doing handwriting at the same time that our kids are thinking up composition by being their scribe. And then some kids will gravitate toward beginning to use their own handwriting more and more and some will either request keyboarding or a parent will realize okay maybe typing is going to be the way here 
to get this through. And then yet another thing is having voice to text transcription and letting kids then use their own typing skills to clean up voice to text, like with Google voice or, or with, um, I can't remember the one dragon something. Anyway, all of the other voice to text tools that can be used. And I think the main thing here is to keep the challenge of the using the hand to write with separate from composing the thoughts and getting them on paper, uh, that, that that's the most important thing. And I'll add that the third thing that I like to keep separate. And again, if you're looking for a curriculum, this is, you can decide whether this is important to you, but for me is the grammar and mechanics. I don't like a kid who is doing composition at the moment that they're composing to have to be worried whether they're spelling something right. Let them spell it wrong and let them not put periods in. This is the, the process called free writing. It's a process that I grew up with. Uh, I recommend the book by Peter Elbow called Writing Without Teachers. It's really old now, but it is how I learned to write and not have all these blocks of, oh, what if I didn't spell that right? Or what if I don't know the answer to that part of what I'm trying to write about yet? Nope, just keep writing. Put your pencil to the paper or speak it into your microphone or say it out loud for your mom to write it down. Just get the content out there. And you will see that kids will begin to drop the accommodations as they no longer need them. One of the most remarkable things I saw when I was teaching in homeschool co-ops was we wrote a lot at co-op and I let kids were allowed to handwrite, type, or use a scribe. And their scribe could be their parent or they could specifically request not their parent because some of them didn't want to you know, work with their parent for that. And I watched over, you know, the same kids over a period of two and a half years gradually drop their accommodation to get to either typing or handwriting or using their own voice to text proficiently without an adult. So I, I think if we provide those supports, they will find their way to the least they don't want to be dependent on, on things they don't need because it slows them down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so mm -hmm. essentially they'll drop it. They'll find the, the, the least interfering way to get their job done once they have gotten themselves to the level that they can perform that way. So um, yeah. So I, I love the voice to text. I love scribing and I love keyboarding. Now I will say as a writer who loves the feel of a pen in my hand, I love to write longhand. I always joke that um, my technical writing is on the keyboard and my poetry is on a yellow legal pad in hand, by, written by hand. Uh, I do think, again, if we look at research, I do think that there is something to be said for the process orientation of handwriting. And that for kids who don't struggle too much with it, it can be a part of the pleasure of writing that they can either grow into 
or enjoy and it becomes a part of how they think. I mean, how many times have we said, oh, I've got to pack for this trip and I don't know what to take. And we grab a piece of paper and start writing down the stuff we have to take. Okay. Mm -hmm. That list making, there's a part of the process of handwriting that down that, that does something to our brains that I know also happens in kids. Hmm. I will also recommend for kids for whom handwriting is difficult, of course, you can do various therapies that help. A lot of outdoor play helps. We often hear small, fine motor skills, but I think also, you know, large motor skills, playing on the playground and all that kind of thing actually really builds hand strength and coordination. But also doing art and specifically Waldorf-influenced homeschoolers do something called form drawing. And form drawing is where you're making little patterns, maybe a, a whole line of loops or a whole outline of a page with loops or rectangles or squares. And it's it's got sort of a mesmerizing quality to it, but it's much easier to emulate than 26 different letters with a capital and a lowercase letter. And so some kids will really start to have some of that same process orientation of the, the feel of the pencil or the pen on paper from doing form drawing. And it will lead into actually forming letters on the page. Now this, I'm not any kind of specialist in occupational therapy or, or anything like that. So kids who need that kind of help should get it from somebody who knows better. I'm speaking as a layperson mm -hmm. here, a mom who just sat down, we just sat down with colored pencils and did this, this form drawing. And I saw my kids who became the same kind of typist that you are, Matt, that mm -hmm. they don't, they just keyboard, they don't write as adults, very seldom. But I saw them have that tactile experience that did seem to benefit them. So I know that we don't want we want to like remove impediments from our kids you know getting all of their thoughts out right so you're talking about the free form writing remove the impediment of the grammar and the spelling and and if you know obviously you know typing is easier right because you can quickly revise you don't have to erase and so that removes impediments but at some point and i don't know what this what this point is but using uh you know a, a pencil and paper or whatever does require you to be more thoughtful before you put something down because and especially process, if it's yeah. if it's pen right you have to really be thinking actively before you write and so that's not the right answer for the earlier writers because we don't want them to feel the impediments but is it high school level where we should start thinking about like you know no i want you to take your time because there's going to be essays that they have to do for ap exams or for college where they may have to do them in person and they have to be able to you know think critically and be cautious about the words that they write without just saying, Hey, we're just going to throw it all at the page and see what sticks and I'll, I'll fix it later. You know, like what, where does that kind of, th there's a place in the world for that. And I'm not sure when that should come in to not, you know, stunt their writing, but to make them be more thoughtful and and, and take their time. I write a hundred percent of my stuff free writing wise without being thoughtful hundred percent. And then I go back and look at it. And even if I'm, if I'm under deadline or anything, and then I go back and edit it. And most 
formats that require you to submit stuff online, you have that ability to, to, you know, quickly dash things out and then go back and fix them up. And that's what I would still recommend that people do. Um, we have a good article on the homeschool mom website that's called, I think it's called high school English composition. Let me look and see if I wrote that down English composition for high school that talks about this process. Many, many people write to discover what they think. They don't think and become thoughtful first and then write it down. And this is one of the most counterintuitive things about learning to write and why I think we have many reluctant writers in middle school and high school. It drove me crazy when teachers would tell me to make an outline first. I don't know what I think until I write. I cannot do that. Now, as a mature writer, I might start writing and the outline suddenly starts to glow in the dark in my brain because that just getting started now that I'm an experienced writer, I have enough synapses cracking that all of a sudden I know exactly where I'm going. But as a 15, 16 year old, I still was writing to discover. And that meant free writing first and then going back and working from there to improve the writing, to add content, to revise it. And then that that produced the most thoughtful, serious, analytical writing that I wrote as a teenager. And that's what I saw in my kids and in my writing students too. And I so, wonder if I'm showing my age a little bit and that that's what we had to do in college is we had to write, you know, in person for exams, we had to write yeah, those the, paragraphs. The blue composition books. Yeah, the comp books. And and I right. wonder with the rise of AI, if some of that in-person writing is going to come back because they don't want them to be able to use AI to generate their work. So maybe they'll make people do things in person. Um, or more oral exams. Right. So so what do you think about AI? What, what do you think about its role in helping our kids become better writers? How should they use it? How should we leverage it or um, watch out for it? <laughs> yeah, I absolutely think that what you're saying is going to come back, is going to come back. It never left my homeschool or my homeschool co-op. My kids wrote in person at co-op every meeting that we had. And you know, at the time AI didn't exist and I wasn't trying to stave off AI, but I could get them comfortable writing to discover on their own to finding out what they think about a subject or what they're thinking about today through free writing and through writing in person in class. And AI is going to be a tool that we're going to use, no doubt, but I'm not clear yet whether it's exactly comparable to the use of a calculator for arithmetic as keeps being stated over and over again, because I'm not sure that there is the same kind of substitute for getting the inner thought life out and on paper. I'm, I'm not sure the analogy holds true. So I would say to parents right now, keep this 
free writing and then revising on paper or on the computer screen, but without internet uh, <laughs> access, keep that going because that's a kind of way that we're going to develop thinkers and, and then have lessons and exposure to things like, you know, chat GBT and, and the other AI tools as additional lessons that don't take the place of learning to write, but that are, you know, this is, this is a technology that you need to know about and that you need to learn to use ethically and that you need to use, you, you know, you may run into in college and so forth. So we don't know where it's going to go yet, honestly. So. Well, one of the fun funny things is they've seen a huge drop in users um, coinciding right with the end of uh, the college semester <laughs> in the open of summer. Kind of funny. Yeah, I had actually two points on those. Uh, interesting. I've heard people starting to say that ChatGPT um, is going to force people into becoming good editors um, and they're going to read what it puts out and they're going to say, that's not what I meant. And they're going to start to hack and piece it together and then generate their own output. Um, but they're actually going to become very good critical readers because this thing is going to produce stuff and they're going to go, that's not exactly what I wanted. And I'm going to now change it to what I wanted. Well, that's and, not exactly completely true or true. Yeah. Or whatever <laughs> that, that might be. Um, and the second thing is when I was in physics uh, department um, in 2002 and three, oh, don't date, don't date us. When I was a sophomore in college, I was, young, <laughs> I was a young, I distinctly remember um, my professor saying, um, I'll, I'll never forget it. He said in the room, he goes, okay, here's your homework. Um, it's five problems. It's probably going to take you 10 hours to do it all. And he said, if you want to use, you know, one of the tools, Maple or MATLAB or, you know, you know, whatever you want to end up using, I'm okay with that. Um, he goes, I want you to do one by hand, and then you can print off the rest of them from the tools. And he goes, because two things, I don't want you to waste time because if you know how to do it, I don't want you to waste your time. I want you to do other problems. Second of all, I don't want you to make a dumb algebra mistake and that cost you a wrong answer because I know you know how to do the algebra, but you're just going to go, you're just going to, you know, eyes roll back like a great white shark and you're just going to forget to make the, turn that into a negative sure. or whatever it might be. Um, and even 20 something years ago, they were okay with automated math problems. And he looked at us and he said, because I don't do it by hand, I do it on the tools because why do I want to waste my time? you know, doing all this stuff. And I think and it was a programming. There was a, there was something you had to learn that day. That was a skill to use MATLAB. It wasn't had, like you just turned yeah. it on and it did it for you. But I wonder but again, if this is it, kind of a skill. Too. It was an input. And then it would go and do pages of calculations for you. And then you would print those out and give those to you, to the teacher. And I'm wondering if ChatGPT, maybe in the, in its current form and maybe in the next forms, forms that we'll see over the next five or six years will apply in that way. But maybe in 10 years, it'll be a completely different animal and we'll have to approach it in a different way. But I'm seeing a lot of parallels with it, with things like Wikipedia and how controversial that was when we were younger. Sure. And, and you know, these computational tools that we were using back in the day, and we saw the same anxieties, but they just became, you know, commonplace and, you know, that we used all the time. And I'm mm -hmm. just kind of wondering if it's going to be similar to that. I, I think we don't know, but I think, yeah. you know, you raised some really good points. And I, I, I do think for a kid or teen who is taking seriously what they want to get across, that idea that they will improve their revision skills is probably spot on. 
for a kid who is simply trying to get a grade to get through a class? Probably not. But that's also always been true of all kinds of tools and all kinds of ways that people either do or don't do their homework. So, um, you know, and I think even the ethical considerations are really important to, if, if kids are going to consider those, then they have to have some exposure to it so that they can understand how does this relate to plagiarism? I mean, I know I, for one, have had a lot of my material scraped, as they say, in order to be used to train these large language models. And I, I never told anybody that they could do that. And so I think there are a lot of unknown questions, not only about how they might affect our kids' education, but also how we might have our kids think about their own values in using some of these things. You know, is it really okay to go out and, and harvest the whole internet to train something that other people make models on mm -hmm. um, that, you know, you're not, that other people make money on and that you're not going to benefit from? I don't know, but kids will have to be exposed to it to be able to have the question. I see another analogy to the music industry when Napster came out and everybody was in the dorm rooms sharing you know, thousands of songs and not paying for it and everything. And that obviously had copyright issues and, and that got brought down. But what came out of that was the understanding and, and the desire of being able to stream. And now I can go on right. YouTube and stream every music I want. I can have a Spotify account yeah, and listen and to anything I want. those get paid now. And they all get paid. So I'm wondering if like whatever, whatever maybe illicit activities of scraping and teaching the LLMs on, on all this content, that coming out of that will be something new and something different that we may have had like the oops period. And then it's going to then create some new industry or something of that nature that then maybe well, the sure. ethical issues will go away. Yeah. Well, or, or you'll have the people who like right now we have um, the people who are actors and writers who are striking against mm -hmm. companies like Netflix and so on because they are concerned they're you know, streaming actually took away their residual income. They can no longer make them, you know, so this, this goes on and on. And I yeah. just, I think we can't know. I think we would do our kids a disservice to let them overly lean on mm -hmm. this kind of tool. And I mm -hmm. think we would also do them a disservice to not, have them know about it at all. They, I, mm -hmm. I think we've got to, it's like so many things in parenting, right? Where you just, just have to another thing for line. us to be worried about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, um, well yeah. we have taken up a lot of time and we currently, nobody will see, but we have a four-year-old banging on the door right now. Uh, <laughs> she says it's time for dinner. And um, could you tell us, you know, as a party, party more, just tell us a little bit about the homeschool mom and you know, what you, what you do for homeschool parents. Sure. The Homeschool Mom is a website that is one of the oldest homeschool websites on the internet. And so it has a really deep and rich uh, amount of information for everybody from beginning homeschoolers all the way up through uh, launching kids either into college or work or whatever they want to do after they finish their homeschool high school. And it is the place that I have chosen to 
have most of my work. There's good readership there and it's a good place to get the message out. I um, do have a column called Ask Jeannie where I have taken questions and that is sometimes a really good format, just like we love to read Dear Abby and and Miss um, Manners and other advice columns. This one is specifically about homeschooling. And so it's a very accessible way to consider challenges and things that might come up in various homeschooling families. So uh, I, I really think it's a, a good resource. There are good state resources there so people can find out their homeschool laws, they can find out activities, and they can find out uh, how to get started and how to make it through these different transitions. So it's the homeschoolmom.com, all one word. We'll go ahead and put the uh, link in the show notes and I, I would second it. It's a very great resource. Thank yep. you so much, Jeannie. This was, I've got so much to think about. Yeah. So I always appreciate, we always appreciate yeah, we talking do. with do, you. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming back on. I appreciate the opportunity. It's always great to talk to you. And I, I love seeing your little one in the door, letting <laughs> us know it's time to wrap it up. Movie's <laughs> over. Time to wrap it up. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Thanks so much for joining us today and making us a part of your homeschool journey. Please engage with us on social media. Join our Homeschool Together podcast group on Facebook and find us at Homeschool Together podcast on Instagram. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions, and recommendations. Until next time. Happy homeschooling!